taken from Matthew 18, verses 1 to 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. The second reading is taken from Matthew 19, chapters 13 and 14. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to, su- belongs to such as these. This is the word of the Lord. Reading from John chapter 16, verses 12 to 15. I've spent much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Thank you, Ellie. And Robin's now going to come and give us a talk. Thank you, Robin. When you say give us a talk, that's not a talking to, I can assure you. No, no, I I realised I'd used the wrong word there when I said this. Good morning, everybody. Some of you know me and wish I wasn't standing here, so you can leave if you like. Others who do know me, who don't know me, well, hang on, it's not too bad after all. This is known in the church as Holy Trinity Sunday, which is a very difficult thing to understand. Now, my wife, Chris, is a daughter. She's a wife. She's a mother. She's a grandmother. She's a great-grandmother. Don't tell, please don't tell her I told you that. Um, She's the youngest great-grandmother in Britain, I think. Well, now, she is one person, and yet she's all those things. But it still doesn't describe God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I want to do in a moment is try and explain the difference that it makes once we accept that, whether we understand it or not. Almighty God is the creator of this world and of a vast universe, creator of man and woman who promptly turned their backs on him, as you probably remember from the original story. We were once teaching our children the story of 
the creation of the world and the creation of man. And so we said to my son, what was the name of the first man? And he said, Adam. That's very good. Judy, what was the name of the first woman? Madam, she said. <laughs> well, it's logical, isn't it? <laughs> we thought that was good. Anyway, unfortunately, the world in which we live has become an appalling place. Wonderfully, God does not give up. He hasn't given up on me, and I had a right royal childhood, because I had a few talking to, I can assure you. And he sent his son, knowing that this world was in a deplorable state, and Jesus, who is God, he's the son of God, but he is God, he came to live amongst us and to love us. And we saw something of his qualities as he loved people, as he taught people, as he healed people, as he was stern with people. But wonderfully, he went to a cross and he died for us. I'm so glad we've got up here an empty cross, not a crucifix, because Christ is risen. He died, but he's risen, and we worship a living Savior. And it was he who said, as we've had in that reading, thank you very much, that Jesus said, I've got to go back to heaven, but I will leave with you the Holy Spirit. That's how we live, that's how we know him. So I want to ask the question, what difference does this make? First of all, I need to say that we cannot hide anything from God. Some of you have no idea, but I used to be a police officer. If you want to leave now, please do, because I do recognize one or two of your faces. <laughs> I'll see you later. As an inspector in London, I was out in my car and I got a call, Alpha One, Alpha Command, return to the station immediately. So I put my foot down, as policemen do, and I raced back to the station. And as I drove in the back gate, the car cleaner stopped me and I wound down the window and he said, Sir, watch it, the Archbishop of Canterbury has been arrested. Well, that was good news, wasn't it? And I thought, well, I won't go through the charge room, I'd better go around the front of the station. And I said to the sergeant, what's happening? He said, young Smith has arrested the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's in the charge room. What's he been arrested for? Drunk and disorderly. So I found young Smith, who'd only just come out of training school, and I thought, he, he's probably got something wrong. So I said to Smith, what's happened? He said, I was walking down Victoria Street, I got called into the Methodist Central Hall, where underneath is a restaurant, and the Archbishop was there, having a right row, he was drunk, he kicked over a table, and he broke the chair, so I arrested him for being drunk and disorderly, and for causing criminal damage. Wow. So I said to the sergeant, you better tell the commissioner and you better get onto press bureau because we don't want the press around here and I'll deal with this as quickly as possible. Get a plainclothes car and once I've charged the archbishop, we'll take him back to Lambeth Palace. So I went into the charge room. There's the archbishop, Dr. Coggan, sitting in the corner. And it's the only time I've ever charged a prisoner by calling him sir. <laughs> sir, will you come and stand in front of me? And so the archbishop did with his dog collar on and a cross and his mauve dickey. And I said, will you please listen to this PC and he's going to tell me why he's arrested you. And the Archbishop listened and I said to him, 
Have you anything to say? Only that I'm very sorry. Well, I said, we're going to treat you well. We're going to take you back in a plainclothes police car to to Lambeth Palace. But tomorrow you've got to go to court and I'm afraid the press will be there. So having charged him and sent Smithy out, I sat there doing some writing. And one of my older PCs came through the charge room door. And as he walked in, he said, Hello, Charlie, to the Archbishop. Well, I knew that Dr. Coggins' name was not Charles. I said, what do you mean, Charlie? Oh, sir, don't you recognize him? He's an out-of-work actor. He loves dressing up. (laughs) So it wasn't the Archbishop at all. So that's being a policeman. On another occasion, I was involved with the investigation of a very big robbery at Maples, which is a big furniture store in London off Tottenham Court Road. And ultimately, the case went to the Crown Court, and a man with three others was convicted. So the four of them got 12 years imprisonment. Incredibly, because the arresting officer, a chief superintendent, made a press statement saying, this man was the robber at at Maples, he sued the chief superintendent from prison, saying, listen, all that's happened is I've been found guilty. I was not a robber. And incredibly, the court held him up, and this criminal got £10,000 damages. You would never believe it, would you? But anyway, I only use these illustrations to say this, that... Somehow or other, we try and deceive God, and we read in the Bible that God is not mocked. There's nothing he misses. So we can't have a facade of being all right. Incredibly, God so loved the world that he sent his son to die in our place for everyone, whoever we are and whatever we are. We cannot deceive God. He can change the worst of us. I was once accused of starting the Mossside riots. In fact, I was actually trying to stop them, but I was a superintendent at the time. And we had a real rough night, um, the night they attacked the police station, and all of us were injured. Some while later, I'd said to my colleagues, I want to see Charlie Moore. He was the one who led these riots. He was a drug dealer. He was a vicious man who'd served terms of imprisonment, but was in fact appointed by Manchester City Council to run a youth club. How ideal. What sort of guy do you want? I want to see Charlie Moore. And my colleague said, do you really want to? He's not wise. You never know what he's going to do to you. Who's afraid of a big black man? Not me. Anyway, one day in the station, my sergeant phoned up and said, Charlie Moore's in the front office. He wants to see you. Shall I kick him out? I said, don't you dare, I've been longing for this. I want to speak to him. Sir, I don't think it's a wise thing. You know what he's like. I said, I know what he's like. Please, I'm coming down to collect him and we'll have a time in our office. When I got upstairs, my clerk, Bob, was in there. I presume he'd been told by the sergeant, you better get in there and see fair place. The chief's going to get beaten up. So I said to Bob, can we have two teas, please, Bob? will you go out? So he left, and Charlie Moore, who wouldn't look at me, looked at the floor and said, "Uh, Mr. Oak, um, I've come to say sorry. 
Charlie, what's going on? I'm hearing all sorts of rumors about you. I've been trying to see you. Sir, I have become a Christian. Now, a vicious, violent man that he was and a drug dealer wanted to be forgiven. And so, when he told me he'd become a Christian, I said, come here, Charlie. And we started to hug. And in walked Bob Mack with the tea. He nearly dropped it. He thought we were fighting. But, you see, even the worst and even the best, as we think of it, can know the Lord Jesus and have our sin forgiven. The worst and the best. Jonathan Aitken, you remember, the very well-educated MP. He was put in prison, but he was converted just before he went into prison. And the other prisoners so respected him, they asked him to write their letters for them and also to read the replies that came back. A little while ago, I was speaking at a meeting, a men's breakfast in street in Yeovil, or near Yeovil in Somerset. When I arrived, the organiser said to me, uh, Robin, you're going to be sitting next or opposite an admiral. He was the last captain of the Royal Yacht. Well, I said, that's interesting. He said, ah, but wait a minute. Next to him are two people who never go to church, and next to you are two people who never go to church. But the admiral's so full of what's happened to him, he's going to tell you what happened three months ago when he became a Christian. And sure enough, I didn't really need to be there as a speaker. The admiral, for those four, had done it for us. God can reach the best and the worst. And he's a wonderful God in Jesus Charles Wesley is recorded as saying that he can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. I want to be very personal for a moment, if I may, to underline what I'm saying. I had a son called Stephen who joined the police force. And Steve was originally walking the beat, then he went into traffic patrol, some of you may have met him, of course, on the M6 or the M456. If you've got white faces, don't worry, it's all over now. But Steve was there not to catch speeders. His role with others was to catch the thieves and robbers who used the motorways as a conduit. You can actually live in London, murder in Birmingham, and be back in your bed by 5 o'clock with the motorway. And Steve's job was to try and catch them like that often on intuition, sometimes on information. But Steve, because of his interrogative ability, was taken into special branch. And that's where he came in touch with terrorism, like his dad, which was my role in the police service, counter-terrorism. One day I was at home by myself. Chris was looking after grandchildren in England. And I got a phone call from Leslie, Steve's young wife, simply saying... Uh, Dad, Steve's been involved in an accident. I don't know any more detail than that, but I'll let you know when I hear. I said, well, where are you now? She said, well, I'm just going up to North Manchester Hospital where Steve is. That was about half past six, and he'd been in a raid, uh, which I didn't know about. She phoned me back at half past nine, and she mumbled rather than spoke, Dad, Steve's been murdered. Oh, 
I said to her, what's happened? And she said, well, I can't, I can't tell you, but she handed the phone to the deputy chief of Manchester, who was a good friend of mine, and told me that Steve had been involved in two raids in the day on terrorists. And at the first raid in the morning at six o'clock, they'd found other evidence for another house, and off they went. And while there, there was a third man who Steve had recognised because he was on the run from London, where he'd been putting Bryson in London's water. And as Steve tried to arrest him with two or three of his colleagues, not knowing he'd got a long knife up his arm, sadly, he and the others were all injured, and Steve was stabbed through the heart. Hard news to bear, I had to tell my wife, who was away, I had to tell her on the telephone. I'd always said to my colleagues, never give bad news by telephone. You don't know the reaction. And I had to say to her, darling, I've got some dreadful news for you. Our Steve's been murdered. Next morning, as I woke up, hardly had a sleep, really, my deputy said on the phone, sorry to tell you, sir, but there's a plane load of journalists coming to the island who want to speak with you. What do I do? I said, well, you can't stop the plane from landing. Let it come down, get them to Port Air and Police Station, and I will have a press conference there. The only time ever as I walked in, the whole of the journalists who were there stood up, which I thought was very nice of them. And it was a very docile press conference asking about Steve and about his life. Until one young man right at the back called out, Mr. Oak, what do you think of the man who killed your son? Now this is where the Holy Spirit, we've already mentioned, came in because I didn't quite know how to answer that. I'd not prepared for that question. And I, for some while I, I was praying, Lord, give me the right words because I knew it would be in the press, whatever I said. And I said to this young man, I don't know all the circumstances and I don't know the man, but I forgive him and I pray that God will forgive him. Suddenly the press conference erupted. They couldn't believe that a chief of police could forgive a terrorist. Well, I thank God we did do that. We still pray for this man who's now in prison. We sat within feet of him in the Old Bailey for a two and a half month trial. He never caught our eye, but we prayed for him. But the point of the forgiveness was that we've got no feeling of retaliation. Yes, justice has to be done, but we believe that our Christian faith, this is the difference that it was made, enabled us to forgive him, and incredibly, as Jesus said, love your enemies. Now, how on earth do you love the terrorist who killed your son, except that the love which God has planted in us, we can have out to them. And that's why we pray for him. So this morning's been a great time and I've been given this privilege of speaking to the family and thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed being here with you and seeing you all. It's great to see you. Hi Helen, they're laughing away. It's great to see you. I just want to say this at the end. Having mentioned what happened to us in our family, the difference that it makes. And I remember I said that it takes the worst and the best. At the end of the funeral, 
or the celebration, as we call it, of Steve's life. He was converted as a teenager. And at the cathedral, I'd been asked by Leslie, his wife, to welcome people. And the place was packed. This was Manchester Cathedral. Steve, now still the only police officer been murdered by an Al-Qaeda terrorist. I was asked if I would welcome people. How do you welcome people to your son's funeral? But one of the things I said was this. Today is not goodbye. It's au revoir. See you later. And you don't believe the out, what came out of that with my senior colleagues. They couldn't believe that I would be able to say that about Steve. But Steve was a believer, and I know not long now I'm getting on, I shall see him again, which is terrific. Positive news. But at the end of that day, as we went back to stay with my daughter and son-in-law, their eldest daughter, Sophie, said, please, before I go to bed, I want to tell you something. At the funeral in the cathedral, funeral Uncle Steve, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus. And she was converted. And she is a super Christian. She's now getting on a bit, and she lives in London. But she loves the Lord out of the tragedy of her Uncle Steve being killed. So in our reading today, we've talked about the Holy Spirit coming because the Lord Jesus went up into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come to guide us and to convict the world of sin so that people who don't believe in him will be judged. It's incredible to think that there is that side to it, but God is purity. So I have to say to us all, where do we stand before him today? What happens when we have tragedy in our life? How do we react to that? Some while ago, a Canadian pilot, Lieutenant Conway, took off in his plane, and it was a plane loaded with munitions, explosives, to land at another airbase. And as he got up to two or 3,000 feet, suddenly all power was lost. He had two things he could have done. One, he could have ejected and saved his life, but the plane would have gone down into Boston and probably hit the hospital there and the school which is next door and maybe thousands of people killed with these munitions which would have exploded. But Lieutenant Conway stayed with the plane. He steered it out into the bay, crashed into the sea and of course died with the plane. A wonderful sacrifice. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. And the Lord Jesus actually gave his own obituary in John chapter 15, the chapter before the one we've read today. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's the same text on our Steve's memorial in the gardens in the Arboretum. So, Jesus, the Saviour, the Redeemer. And one last illustration some while before the 39-45 war, some missionaries in Western Africa were trying to understand the word redeemer to put into the translation of a Bible. 
And they asked one of the chiefs there, how do I translate Redeemer into your language? And he said, well, let me take you back to the days of slavery. And when those came into the jungles to take my parents and my grandparents and my forebears into slaves, they would chain them with a chain, a collar around the neck and a chain to the next person and so on. So they were all chained together in a long line. Now he said, Redeemer, we say, take his head out. Why? Well, it's possible to actually buy back a slave, as it was in those days, with a certain amount of money or whatever it was to the slaverers. You could actually buy one back, so they took the head out of the collar. What a wonderful illustration. And incredibly, when we see Jesus as the Redeemer, we are taken out of the sinful life in which we live and given a new life in Christ. Yes, we have to face tragedies. We have to face sadness. We even have to face death ultimately. But wonderfully, we're with the Redeemer. Listen to these lovely words. There is a Redeemer, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God for sinners slain. When I stand in glory, I will see his face, and there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. I love seeing you here, and I commend to you our faith. I commend to you the Lord Jesus. He wants to take hold of your life and make it what it ought to be so that we can look forward to that day when we meet him. And you'll meet my son as well.